Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that explores Chinese history and culture through historical Chinese dramas. This is Kathy. And this is Karen. Today, we are discussing episodes 19 and 20 of Ho Gong, Jin Huan Zhuan, Empresses in the Palace. It's been sort of doom and gloom as of late. Jin Huan just hasn't had much luck. Today is going to be different. We've got everything in these two episodes. The blossoming romance, outsmarting Hua Fei, and confronting a backstabbing sister. Let's get started. In the last episode, Jin Huan set into motion a plot to trick Hua Fei. So let's see what happens. We open with the emperor, Huang Shang, arriving on the scene, and Hua Fei is making a ruckus outside of where Shen Meizhuang is banished, because Hua Fei thinks that Jin Huan is visiting Shen Meizhuang, which is strictly against the emperor's decree. Hua Fei is hoping to catch Jin Huan red-handed and dispatch this meddling foe. Right on cue, though, Jin Huan and Qing Pin arrive which surprises Hua Fei. It's really funny to see the look on Hua Fei's face at this point in time. Jin Huan calmly answers that she was just chatting with Jin Pin. Now Hua Fei is the one in trouble since she didn't have a decree from either Huang Shang or Huang Hou. So she's the one in the wrong for trying to enter into Shen Meizhuang's quarters. And that's pretty much what Huang Shang says. Like, why are you here? I just think it's really funny. Huang Sheng is obviously annoyed and orders his eunuch, Su Peisheng, to investigate. Su Peisheng comes out to confirm that no one else is in Shen Meizhuang's room, except for Shen Meizhuang and a couple of her maids. Hua Fei knows that she messed up and immediately kneels in front of Huang Sheng because she knows she's in trouble. Huang Sheng is disappointed and punishes Hua Fei for this ridiculous evening by not restoring her powers to rule the imperial harem as second-in-command. He then orders everyone to leave, but not before Jingpin asks to have half of the guards removed from watching Shen Meizhuang, which he acquiesces. After the emperor leaves, Hua Fei and Jin Huan have their first one-on-one confrontation. Hua Fei is absolutely livid that she walked into Jin Huan's trap. This is quite literally the first time Jin Huan has won a round against Hua Fei, so Jin Huan is feeling quite cocky too. They exchange some verbal blows and Hua Fei walks out in a huff. Can I just say, the acting here is so great. I love Hua Fei's facial expression in the scene. Jiang Xin, the actress, does an amazing job. Like how her eyes just narrow when she hears Jing Pin add more fuel to the fire. I love the smirk that Jing Pin gives when she hears that Hua Fei's powers will not be restored. Shin Wen also has a smile on her face after this event, but the MVP definitely goes to the actress Jiang Xin for Hua Fei. I also want to point out in this scene, Huang Sheng says to Jin Huan, thankfully, you are not in trouble or you're not implicated in this matter. Because I think Huang Sheng knows a lot of the time that Hua Fei is just being unreasonable and trying to do ridiculous things. And he is actually uh, happy to find that Jin Huan is learning how to be smart now, right? I think that's where he's seeing her growth. 
With everyone gone, Jin Huan quickly changes into a maid's dress and sneaks into Shen Meizhuang's room. She is appalled at the destitute situation that Shen Meizhuang is living in. Okay, it's not absolutely terrible, but let's face it, she probably would have died if it weren't for Jingping and the maid Feng Ruo to help her out. Shen Meizhuang has accepted the harsh reality that the emperor Huang Shang is just cold-hearted and that she lost the game. She should have known about her own body, but as she points out, there wasn't any reason for her to fake the pregnancy. She had enough favor with the emperor, she would have gotten pregnant at some point. Jin Huan's time is up to talk to Shen Meizhuang and she rushes out. She tries to hide from the guards and jumps onto a small boat. Who else just so happens to be on the boat? Why, the handsome 17th prince, Guo Junwang Yunli. What a coincidence. The 17th prince, Yun Li, agrees to row Chen Huan back to her quarters and they set off. They're currently on a little lake. She sees that there's a bunch of lotus flowers or hua on the boat and the two of them strike up a nice conversation about lotus flowers and du ruo or Japanese polia, another type of flower. I swear, every conversation is now about flowers. I think we need to do a tally of all the different types of flowers that we've talked about in this show. <laughs> Japanese polia, or du ruo, symbolizes love or admiration. Who does the 17th prince like? Well, the 17th prince then comments about how he is honored to be in the presence of xi shi. Chen Huan becomes annoyed at this, and they have a short conversation about the story of xi shi, which I will talk more about later in this episode, because I think it's actually very interesting. Anyways, Jin Huan notices that the 17th prince dropped a small pouch. She picks it up and opens it to find the paper cut of herself that she put on the plum blossoms last year. She's astonished. How could he have it? Does he know that it's her? I mean, in the drama, they say that the cutout is almost lifelike of her. So I think it's pretty clear that he knows it's her. At the same time, the 17th prince quotes a few lines about love from Wu Danting, which Kathy will talk about too. Jin Huan returns the bag because she's getting a lot of dangerous signals right here. The 17th prince says that it is a beloved purse and he's wearing the scent of Du Ruo, which means that he's in love. So does it mean that he likes her? She quickly tells him not to show anyone this pouch or this cutout and to not think too much about love. Ooh. Once they get on land, she then asks him to not tell anyone that they've met, and she also rejects the two times he offers to help her off the boat. She knows that being associated with him is dangerous, and she wants to nip everything in the bud. She knows he's at least attracted to her, but at this point in time, she is still very, very much in love with the emperor and very committed to him. But of course, in this time period, if they got caught, they would both be, as we've mentioned before, severely punished. Chen Huan returns to see Huan Bi pacing around nervously. Ugh, the two-faced snake. Time to confront this backstabbing sister. Chen Huan essentially tells Huan Bi, that she knows all of the issues that has happened to her these last few months have been because of her dear sister. Huan Bi confesses her crimes and gets all teary-eyed. 
She didn't know that Jin Huan knew they were sisters. Okay, I can't even. Huan Bi just sucks. Huan Bi confesses that she wanted to improve her station in life, and the best way to do so, at least in her mind, is to become a concubine. It's clear right now that Huan Bi isn't super smart, because after all of the things that Jin Huan has had to endure, Huan Bi still thinks being a concubine is worth it. In my mind, this is also a commentary on the strict social hierarchy during this time period. The reason why Huan Bi is so petty towards An Lingrong is because she looks down on her. She thinks that as the daughter of Jin Yuan Dao, Jin Huan's father, she's more worthy than An Lingrong and she should also become a concubine. If An Lingrong can win the favor from the emperor, she can too. However, Jin Huan coldly points out that Huan Bi is not recorded in the family genealogy. So no matter what she does, Jin Huan is still just a maid. She can be discarded in an instant. Didn't she already see so many examples? Jin Huan's grand plan for her sister was to find a respectable husband from the Eight Banners and to marry her off as an official wife, not a concubine. Huan Bi would have been made a goddaughter of the family and lived a respectable life, which is way better than a concubine of the emperor. And what does Huan Bi do? Throw it all away for the likes of Cao Guiri. She doesn't understand that if there is no Jin Huan, there is no Huan Bi. We also get confirmation that Huan Bi has been conspiring with Cao Guiren. You'll remember that a few episodes back, Huan Bi was caught by Cao Guiren burning paper money for her dead mother. That, I think, is when this relationship started out, and Cao Guiren essentially blackmailed Huan Bi into being an informant for her and Hua Fei. Sure, it was blackmail, but it also wouldn't really work if Huan Bi didn't comply. Huan Bi could have told Jin Huan what happened, but Huan Bi wants that fame and fortune, so that's why she did it. And this is why you have to watch this drama multiple times, because that innocuous meeting of these two women a few episodes ago was the cause of many of the issues that Jin Huan experiences now. But the show never explicitly says it. And there are a couple of scenes in later episodes where you never get formal confirmation of what happens. So it's quite interesting for us to theorize of what, uh, how things occurred. Here, it's clear that Cao Guiren and Huan Bi conspired together after that one encounter. That's pretty much it for episode 19, but can I say what a night? Jin Huan delivered a standout performance. Let's look at all she accomplished. Number one, she wins a round against Hua Fei. Number two, she confirms her suspicions that Huan Bi is the mole. Number three, she gets to see Shen Mei Zhuang. Number four, she gets valuable information that the alliance between Cao Guiren and Hua Fei isn't as strong as it seems. And number five, she successfully flirted with Guo Junhuang. You go, girl. In episode 20, we start out with eunuchs coming to give Jin Huan a very beautiful and extravagant pair of shoes made of very fine silk. These are so beautiful and nice that many people in the palace become quite jealous. <coughs> Hua Fei. 
Kwame receives two rolls of this type of fabric herself, but quickly gifts them to Jinhuan once she discovers what type of flowers are embroidered on the silk. We'll discuss these shoes and clothes more in depth, but they are quite beautiful. I think there's a lot of meaning behind the silk that Huafei gives to Jinhuan. Karen disagrees, um, so we'll talk about it. Huafei obviously can't stand Jinhuan having such nice things, so what does she do? She knows that the one person who can help her situation is Tai Ho. So she goes to see Tai Ho, the Empress Dowager, or mother to the Emperor. Guafei brings Tai Ho a lovely cape and goes on a long discussion of how she is no longer young and has to not wear very beautiful things and that others in the palace have much nicer things than she does now. It's hilarious because right after Huafei leaves, Tai Ho's maid is like, do you also think there's too much vinegar in the air? I think it's really funny because in Chinese, being jealous is described as eating vinegar or drinking vinegar, however you want to say it. It's called chu tzu. And so the maid is like, do you think there's too much tzu yi in the air that we need to uh, blow away with tan xiang, with some perfume? Regardless of how Tai Ho and her maid feel, Huafei gets what she wanted from her meeting with Tai Ho. By bringing the cape made of exquisite black fox pelt, she reminds Tai Ho that Huafei needs more attention from Huangsheng. So, Tai Ho summons Huangsheng and they have another long-winded roundabout discussion about where Huangsheng should be spending time. As is uh, evident in previous examples, no discussion between Huangsheng and Tai Ho is ever direct and straightforward. It is very uh, long-winded. But in the end, Huangsheng agrees to spend more time with Huafei. Now, the most interesting line in this entire episode is right here. Tai Ho says that the special perfume given to Huafei called Huan Yixiang has almost run out. The manufacturing of this perfume is very difficult. Should we continue to give Huafei this perfume or should we let it stop? Ladies and gentlemen, if you've watched this drama already, then you know what this perfume is. We're at episode 20 and we see hints of the true nature of Huangsheng because he says, of course we need to keep giving her this perfume. She's used to it. Why wouldn't we give it to her? Tai Ho doesn't say anything and just accepts this decision. Basically in this line, we see that Tai Ho is actually trying to relax the restrictive conditions that they were giving Huafei and also being uh, a little bit nicer to her. It is Huangsheng that is making the conscious decision to continue to, let's say, hurt Huafei. The timing of this conversation is perfect because Nian Gong Yao, Huafei's brother, comes back after having successfully defeated the rebellion in the Northwest. Yongzheng, the emperor, is hosting a celebratory meal with Nian Kung Yao and Huafei. We haven't really seen scenes like this where it is more formal with officials from the court. Normally, it's just Huangsheng sharing an informal meal at one of the concubines' palace. In this scene, he's eating with Nian Kung Yao and there are a lot of rules. For one, you see that each dish is placed in front of the emperor and a eunuch has to test it 
with silver to see if there's poison. Another rule is that you have to have a eunuch serve you each bite of food you want. Technically in the drama, they don't show this, but the eunuch is supposed to take a bite first of the food. Um, some say to taste, uh, test the food. Others say it is for poison. And this is all has to be done before the emperor can eat. And the emperor is supposed to eat first. You're not supposed to eat before the emperor eats, which uh, Nian Gong Yao does. Because there is this role of having a eunuch serve you food, Nian Gong Yao angers Huang Shang by asking Huang Shang's head eunuch, Su Pei Shang, to serve him food. As we see in the drama, Huafei is petrified by the audacity of her brother in asking for such things. And this is where Chen Jianbin, the actor for Yongzheng, does also a fantastic job. His pancake face remains stoic and he doesn't really show much anger, but you can tell by the long pauses that he has that he is not happy with how rude Nian Gong Yao is to him and his head eunuch. Wang Shang even dumps away his food because he is annoyed, but doesn't say anything. After all, they need to keep Nian Gong Yao happy so that he can continue to serve him. There's a few scenes about this, and I'll discuss this more um, in our analysis. The Empress Huang Hou, though, is stunned by the news of Nian Gong Yao's favoritism. This, in turn, has translated into Hua Fei's regained favor. This overall does not bode well for Huang Hou. It could mean that her own position as Empress is in peril. We hear that the Emperor hasn't even spent time with Jin Huan and favoring all that for Hua Fei. Sure enough, we see the emperor enjoying a night with Hua Fei. The episode ends with Adeline Rong being summoned to sing for the emperor and Hua Fei. Jin Wan goes with her mainly to make sure nothing happens to Adeline Rong, and we'll see what happens in the next episode. Okay, that was a lot to recap. Let's get on with our analysis. Karen, where do we want to start? Let's talk about the lovely boat ride between the 17th Prince, Yunli, and Jin Huan, and their discussion about the lovely Xi Shi and Fan Li. The 17th Prince compares Jin Huan to Xi Shi, but surprisingly, Jin Huan does not want to be compared to her, which is odd because Xi Shi is one of the most beautiful women in Chinese history. They have a discussion, and the 17th prince is amazed at Jin Huan's analysis. So what is the story behind this? As I just mentioned, Xi Shi is one of the most famous women in China and is on the list of the four beauties in Chinese history. We mentioned another one of these beauties previously, uh, which was Yang Guifei, and now we are discussing Xi Shi. Pretty much, if you are described or compared to Xishu, it means you are one of uh, the most beautiful women out there. And it is a huge honor to be compared to Xishu. So why does Jin Huan not want to be described as her? Xishu lived during Chunqiu Shidai, or the spring and autumn period of Chinese history, around 500 BC, so a long, long time ago. This, is, I think, is the earliest time period that we've talked about in this, uh, in this podcast. 
There are many, many stories and books and dramas or operas about Cixi and her beauty and how she brought about the demise of a kingdom, plus her romance with Fan Li. It is a big compliment to be compared to Cixi, as I was mentioning, and it's actually really funny because in many of the dramas that portray her, a lot of the fans are often saying things like, this actress is not pretty enough to be Cixi, how dare you? She is supposed to be uh, this beauty that transcends time and this actress is not pretty enough. <laughs> well, in a nutshell, during this era, what happens? There were smaller kingdoms slash states, and the story is that the king of Yue, named Gou Jian, was defeated by the king of Wu, named Fu Chai. And this Yue Wang, named Gou Jian, wanted to exact revenge against Wu Wang, Fu Chai. So what does Gou Jian do? He finds beautiful women to offer to Fu Chai as a way to destroy the king and his kingdom since Fu Chai loves women. The plan ultimately works and the kingdom of Wu is destroyed. The king, Fu Chai, is forced to commit suicide. This is in part thanks to Xi Shi. Now, History isn't super clear on this, but it seems that the minister finally and Cixu developed a romance before, uh, before she was sent to Wu, uh, Wu Wang to become the spy. And after the fall of the kingdom of Wu, the legend goes that the two lovers got back together and go off on a boat and disappear forever to live happily ever after. Other stories say that Cixi drowned. So you have one happy ending, one not so happy ending, but the end result is that she and Fenli were a couple, but she is sent to uh, the kingdom of Wu to destroy the kingdom. She successfully does it, or at least there are, she is, uh, plays a huge role in destroying this kingdom, and they get back together with, uh, she gets back together with Fenli. In the drama we're watching, Chen Huan comments that people always discuss Cixi, this beautiful woman who caused the downfall of a kingdom, or else blame the king of Wu, Fu Chai, for being seduced. Chen Huan, however, wonders why no one pays more attention to Fan Li, because he was the one who sent his lover, Cixi, as a tribute. No matter what, that is an extremely cold-hearted thing to do. And even though Cixi decided to forgive this action and be with Fenli after the downfall of the kingdom of Wu, the feelings and the relationship after having been sent away must not be the same as their original relationship. This is what Chen Huan tells the 17th prince on that boat ride. And he is very amazed and in awe because nobody ever criticizes Fan Li. And this is an interesting viewpoint because Fan Li has actually, I think, a pretty good reputation in history as being a good military advisor. And I think history portrays this as natural of, oh yeah, he was the, uh, the one who actually um, suffered by sending his lover away. They don't really talk about Cixi's feelings. The 17th prince, as am I, is very impressed with Jin Huan's explanation. So it's clear that she, once again, is educated and has a very different viewpoint of love. What do you think, Kathy? I like this story. Yeah. Um, I, 
I do think though it's a cliche story. Um, I, I do like her different take on it, but the story of Sishu Fan Li and Yue Wang Gojian is is pretty much very cliche right now. The next thing I want to discuss is the two lines of song that Guo Jun Wang says right after this conversation about Fan Li and Sishu. He says, Qing bu zhi suo qi, yi wang er shen, sheng zhe ke yi si, si ke yi sheng. These two lines come from the song Mu Dan Ting, or the Peony Pavilion, by Tang Xianzu. It was written in the Ming Dynasty, so a few hundred years before this. These two lines roughly translate to, Love can start from anywhere, deep and lasting. The living can die for love, and the dead can come back for love. Very touching, right? Guo Wang is on the boat expressing his views of love. He's willing to die for his loved one. Oh, it's so cute. He's so in love. Jin Huan hears this and finds the paper cutout from his pouch. She puts two and two together and is like, oh no, oh no, mayday, mayday. I need to stay away from him. Guo Wang is already in love with the woman from the cutout. She definitely cannot let him know that it's her. She doesn't dislike him, but she knows that nothing can come from it. No, I think he know. I think she knows. I think he knows it's her. Uh, I I think he definitely knows. I think he definitely knows. I talked about this earlier. He definitely knows it's her. The cutout is like an exact replica of her. He knows. Okay, okay. Fine. These two lines from the poem or the song encapsulate their relationship completely. It cannot end well. She is already a woman of the emperor. What is going to happen? Okay. Well, what else do we want to talk about? Thank you, Kathy, for that uh, lovely description. I never really thought about this this poem, actually. So good to know that it comes from um, an actual song. Well, let's talk now about the shoes that Jin Huan was gifted by the emperor. These types of shoes are called pendixie, or pot bottom flowered shoes, and we haven't really discussed them, but it is a staple for Qing Dynasty dress. Women in the Han Dynasty is before this Manchu World Dynasty did not wear these shoes, but they are worn by pretty much all royalty and all wealthy women in the Qing Dynasty, apparently. And I remember watching Huan Zhu Ge Ge 20 years ago and being so fascinated with these types of shoes because I was like, what are these? These are so interesting, so new. As you see in the drama, the shoes have a very thick heel in the middle of the shoe. And that was the style of shoe, like I said, for the royalty and the wealthy, not for commoners. And it's actually quite cool to see that we have historical archives because women, there are photos of women in the royal family in the late Qing dynasty um, wearing these shoes. And I personally haven't tried them on. I feel like they would be really fun to try them on. Um, pr but pretty much every drama now that is set in the Qing dynasty requires women to learn how to wear these shoes and to be in order to be more realistic with history. It's quite funny because in interviews of um, filming Zhen Huanzhuan, I remember one where Tao Xinran, who is the actress for An Lingrong, uh, said that uh, at the beginning of shooting this drama, all of the women 
we're struggling to walk on these shoes because it's unlike modern day heels where the heel is at the back of the shoe. Like I mentioned, the heel now is like, like a thick square in the middle of the, of the foot. And (laughs) she was saying that the women would roll their ankles constantly, but by the end of filming, they would, they had learned pretty much how to fly with them on. And it's, it's, uh, it is quite difficult because a lot of the places that they're filming is on like cobblestone or uneven, um, flooring. So they've had to, uh, increase their skill of walking. There are a variety of reasons why this shoe style became popular, including one, the women wanting to increase their height, which women do now. Two, giving space between um, the bottom of their clothes and the and the bottom of, or and the and the floor, so that their clothes didn't drag on the floor and um, track mud. Three, the thick soles and materials of the shoes provided insulation during the cold weather, and. Another thing that is really interesting is that Manchurian women historically did not bind their feet, whereas Han women did. And so another supposed reason for these shoes is to achieve the look and uh, posture of women who had their feet bound, but did not. Because as you'll know, as we discussed before, women who had their feet bound basically could not walk. (laughs) It's just, you can't walk. And so having these shoes with these soles made... Uh, you look more dainty to be like the women who uh, were very dainty and could not walk. Not really sure why that was, uh, let's see, a desirable trait, but there we have it. Um, It's all about the patriarchy. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) In any case, these lovely shoes that were gifted to Xinhuan are made of a special type of fabric called shujin. What is it? Shujin is expensive silk fabric or brocade made from the Shu region, which is present-day Sichuan, but I think it is more specifically in the region near Chengdu. This type of fabric has more than 2,000 years of history and is distinct from silk fabrics from other regions in China. There are four major types of jin. Uh, and they are the Yunjin from Nanjing. And Yunjin was actually discussed in brief passing in this drama. There's Songjin from Suzhou. There's, and there's Zhuangjin from Guangxi. And together, they make the four major types of Jin or brocade of China. The Shujin is extremely expensive, extravagant, and technically demanding to make. Fortunately, you can still get shujin now, though it is very rare. And I was watching a documentary about this type of brocade, and it's funny because they literally quote Jin Huan Zhuan in describing how expensive and time-consuming it is to make. It takes months to finish a piece of fabric, but the end result is quite exquisite. So it is, it's uh, understandable that uh, this is something that only um, is given to royalty or the extremely wealthy. I also want to talk about something specific with this brocade. Huafei receives two rolls of the silk. At first, she's extremely pleased and quite happy with the embroidery. It's unique, it's different. She doesn't recognize the flower at all. However, once Taoguren's maid states what it is, the ladies immediately want to discard it. The flower is none other than the Si Yan Hua or that was discussed in an earlier episode. Well, where have we heard it before? In episode 17, 
Zhen Huan and Guo Junwang Yunli had a lengthy conversation about this flower. It only blooms at night and is therefore viewed as unlucky by Hua Fei and the rest of the ladies. She wants to throw it out, but Cao Guiyan tells her to gift it to someone else. Who else should they give it to? Zhen Huan, of course. Something to match her shoes. Zhen Huan receives the gifts and doesn't say anything. She's extremely suspicious, and rightfully so, about the gift from Hua Fei, yet she does recognize the Si Yan Hua. I don't think she thinks anything more about it and just accepts it as a weird gift. Here's my hypothesis, though. Guo Junwang wanted to send Jin Huan the brocade, but he couldn't send it to her directly. So he sends the silk to Hua Fei. I think that he knew Hua Fei would transfer them to Jin Huan because of the flower's meaning. This is a super roundabout way, but he's a smart guy. I mean, who else knows about that flower? I think this is too much of a coincidence for Qian Youhua or Xi Yanhua to be on a brocade and just be sent to Hua Fei. She even says she likes rather, um, what do you call it, like gaudier types of flowers, right? Karen, what do you think? I So this is where we differ. I don't know if this is the case, but even though the, uh, in earlier episodes, um, we do hear that Guo Jingwang went to Shushan Didai uh, as a kind of like a trip, I don't know that he would have had time to be able to um, get this fabric in to Hougong to Neufu in time for this to happen. And I also just don't, I don't know, I just... I don't know. I just don't think that Guo Junwang would have done this for Jin Huan. Um, I don't think so. Like, they had this whole conversation. He's currently not here. Who else would be sending the Tian Youhua over to Hua Fei? You listener can decide what it is. I think it's one way. Karen thinks it's another. Okay, regardless of what you think, the shoes and the clothes are made of very elaborate shujin. So I guess we all learn a little bit about this fabric that is uh, very expensive and extravagant. And I would say that in this drama, compared to other dramas, um, the clothing or like the, the, yeah, the clothing is of much higher quality than other, um, other costumes have been. So I think it's a very beautiful outfit and something like very interesting to learn about. Let's finish this episode with a little chat about Niangong Yao. This episode is just a highlight reel of everything Niangong Yao does that annoys the emperor. Can I say this? Niangong Yao may be a brilliant general, but he's extremely stupid with politics, especially of imperial court. He thinks his military power is enough to get a seat at the table. He repeats the statement that the emperor makes that they're one family. Are they, though? The emperor certainly makes it seem like it, but Niang Yao is just there sitting and not even kneeling in some instances. That is not okay. This is where Niang Yao is dumb. Power is the most important thing to the emperor. No one is reading the signs on the wall. Not Niang Yao, not Hua Fei, and not even Huang Hou for thinking that uh, her position might be in danger. We'll, we'll discuss who actually knows what's happening, um, and we'll definitely see where the storyline goes, but let's be very conscious of how Hua Fei receives her favoritism and how closely linked it is to her brother's performance 
in, in war and in the imperial court. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you are enjoying us going through this drama. We're a little over a quarter of the way through. Um, There's still a lot to discuss and hope you will continue to join us as we delve further into Hou Gong Jin Huan Zhuan. As always, if you have any comments or questions, please email us at chasingdramaspodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to having you with us in the next episode.